This morning, we are celebrating the resurrection of a Nazarene carpenter who was crucified by Roman accusers, was buried and rose from the dead three days later. And I want to make something clear just from the start, especially if this is your first time here and you go to church about once or twice a year and we may not see you again for 52 weeks. Uh, Thank you for being here. We are glad you are here. Um, But Easter is a huge deal for Christians. It's a big deal. I used to, I remember as a a kid being like, man, Christians go kind of wild during this time of year. Usually like they're pretty reserved and kind of quiet, whatever else. And then around Easter time, they would just go crazy. But it's for good reason. Easter is a big deal. Uh, Just just as as an aside, Right? And I, th- I think this is important that we lay the foundation to start with, that we just understand why we are gathered here this morning, why thousands upon thousands of people will go to church today and not go any other day, why it is in our kind of ancestral DNA that we make a big deal out of this Sunday. And we, you know, as a pastor, right, I'm always trying to teach my kids things and, and work through things. And so I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, I do a pretty good job of raising my kids and discipling them and, re- and reading the word. So on Friday, we're walking through my neighborhood and one of my sweet little neighbors, she's got a bunch of Easter bunnies spread out all over her yard. And I'm like, this is it. I've got a moment here, a teachable moment with my kids, right? I'm going to do it, right? And so I know Gideon knows the answer because if you guys know Gideon at all, he memorizes every answer that has ever existed to anything. He reads encyclopedias for fun. And so I don't ask him this question. I turn to Josiah, my six-year-old, and I'm Josiah, what is today? And he's like, it's Good Friday, Dad. I'm like, yes. I was like, what are, we, what are we celebrating and remembering today? Today is the day that Jesus died on the cross. I'm like, yes, that, that's it. I was like, and on Sunday, what is Sunday, buddy? He's like, Easter. And I was like, yes. I'm like, okay, God, I've got it. I've done it. And I look at him. I was like, see our neighbors decorating for Easter. He's like, yeah. I was like, but what is Easter really all about? And he looks at me with this huge smile on his face, and he goes, Candy and eggs, Dad. I failed. <laughs> I'm like, nobody, that is not what Easter is about. And then I take a step back and, and Gideon and I start explaining to him, guys, Easter is about Jesus, the Son of God made flesh before us wrongly and unjustly crucified at the hands of wicked men and women. And I, I want to lay something out, right? Because just a few days ago, we were kind of pondering and remembering that sad moment when Christ was crucified and buried. But here's what I want you to know this morning, if you don't know this already. It was God's plan for that to happen. God had planned for everything that took place during the Passion Week to to have happened, right? In Isaiah 53, this is hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The prophet Isaiah penned these words about someone he referred to as the suffering servant. Let me read these to you. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. See, the the Lord is going to crush him, and yet God's will will prosper through his hand, right? Then Then look at what he says in verse 11. 
out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, right? See what he's saying there, right? Through this righteous one, many will be accounted as righteous through him and he shall bear their iniquities, right? He will take on their sin, their rebellion, right? He will take all of that on his shoulders. Then look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Then look at this because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Right, this was God's plan to send Jesus to suffer at the hand of wicked men and women for you and for me so that God might forgive us of our sin. And so what Jesus was doing on Good Friday is he was taking the sin of humanity on himself and satisfying the wrath of God, right? The theological term for that is propitiation, right? It means to appease God the Father's wrath for our rebellion. And then three days later, right? Today, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. And he defeated death. He defeated sin. And he displayed God's love, God's mercy, God's power, and God's forgiveness to us all. That is what we are celebrating this morning. That is why we are here. That is why, if you, this is your first time at church, grandma said, go to church on Easter because it's important. Because for thousands of years, that is what we have been celebrating. The resurrection of our king who died in our place and then rose again. Let me just make something clear, right? Because again, I know we have people here this morning. This might be the only time I ever see you. At Aletheia Church, we celebrate that reality every week. We're glad you're here and we celebrate Easter like just as a special time of remembrance, but we celebrate the resurrection at this church every week because that is something we need reminded of every week. Life is hard. This past year, I think, has revealed that more than any other. And one of the things that has driven me to a deeper worship and a more profound just okayness with the reality that I am not in control, that I don't have to have everything figured out, is the fact that my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ have a greater hope than what is right in front of us, and that hope is in Jesus. And so today, we celebrate that the grave is not empty because God raised Jesus from the dead. And because Jesus has risen from the grave, we are forgiven, we are loved, and we are adopted as God's children. And that is worth celebrating. And so this morning, right, as we look at Matthew 28, because that's just the first sermon of many I'm going to preach this morning. As we look at Matthew 28 this morning, here, here's what we're going to see, right? As we've read that story of the resurrection, right, here's what we're going to see we're gonna see an invitation to exchange fear for faith. We're gonna see in the text, Matthew, the, 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 the writer of the gospel of Matthew, he's gonna mention the word fear four separate times 
in just those first 10 verses. And then we're going to see what God offers as the remedy for that fear. And this is important for a number of reasons to, to process through this and think through this. One, because we need to understand what God is offering and has for us because it's better than what the world offers. But we also need to know this. We as people, as human beings, one of, I've, I've traveled to a, a couple of different countries in the world now, and I've experienced a number of different cultures. And one of the things that I've realized every culture has in common is that we as human beings are fearful. Those fears are different, but every single one of us in this room on some level struggles with fear. Uh, oftentimes the ones who say they don't are the ones that struggle with it the most. They just lie to themselves about it. As my friend, Pastor Joby Barton up in Jacksonville, he, he often says this, right? I've heard him say it like two or three times when I've been around him. What we fear in life often reveals two things to us. One, it often reveals to us the things that we value the most in this world and where we trust God the least. And so let me ask you this question as we start processing through this text this morning. What are you fearful of this morning? If you took a step back, right? I know we're excited. We're, we're celebrating this morning. We're with family. We're with friends. We're gonna eat a good meal later today, quite possibly. What are you fearful of this morning? Where are you struggling to hope for something better than your current reality? I mean, for goodness sakes, guys, we're in the middle of walking, I think, out of a global pandemic. Maybe you're here this morning and you're worried about your health. You got a bad diagnosis this week. Or the prognosis of a family member doesn't look good. Maybe you're fearful of your financial situation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're fearful because your kids are crazy and you don't know what you're going to do as you continue to raise them. Students, I know this is true. You have exams in three weeks and you are freaking out. Maybe you're worried about a job. Maybe you're fearful of a relationship or the lack thereof. I would submit this to you this morning. Jesus's invitation for you is to take that fear, hand it over to him, and place your faith and trust in him because he is able, because he will lead you through it, and because he is better than whatever you're trusting in. And so if you'll take a moment to just bow your heads with me, and I'm gonna pray that God would reveal himself to us in the text this morning, and then we're gonna process through these verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning and celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. Father, we worship you and we celebrate that reality this morning that we have a king who not only died in our place, but rose again and is seated at your right hand. And Father, we ask now that you would meet us here this morning, reveal to us how we might exchange our fears and our desire for control for faith in you. And may that lead us to know you, to love you, to worship you, and to glorify you all of our days. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verse one. Look at that with me. 
It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So let me just stop here for a second because I'm always struck by this verse. Jesus's male disciples, especially the 12, get a ton of publicity. Who's going to the tomb on Sunday morning? The ladies, right? I was going to make a joke about TLC, no scrubs, and the scrubs were the, the guys and the ladies were not, but don't have time for that. Derek's saying no, right? But the ladies are the ones that are going to the tomb. And, and I think what's, what's fascinating about this to me is the, the, the female disciples went through the exact same thing that the male disciples had gone through, except probably had not quite as close of a relationship with Jesus as some of them did. That the, the female disciples, they would have been dealing with the exact same emotions and fears that the 12 would have. You know, they're, they're, they're dealing with this great love and respect for Jesus. And so they're heading to the tomb because they want to take care of the body of Jesus. And the Sabbath has just passed. And so they want to provide the proper burial and, and burial rites for him as a Jew. And so even though, right, they are dealing with the emotional loss of their leader and their king and this man who they thought that was their Messiah, who was going to deliver them from Roman rule, right? They're dealing with all of this hurt and all of this pain and the other Mary here, by the way, is the mother of Jesus. So the loss of her child, right? They're heading to this tomb because they love this man so much that even though they're confused and hurt, they're going there to take care of him. And, and they're going to this tomb. And think about this. They're, they're dealing with sorrow. They're dealing with grief, but they're also dealing with fear because they know the reality is Jesus was just killed and crucified as his followers, the same thing might be awaiting them. And so going to the tomb, they don't even know what to fully expect. And yet faithfully, off they go. And then it says this in verse two, and behold, so like, look, hey, look out. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. All right, so there's this great earthquake, which means everybody in the region would have at least known something big had happened. There's this huge earthquake, and this angel shows up, and it says his appearance was lightning and clothing white as snow. So something different about this guy, okay? And it says he rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, if you could throw that picture for me of um, a, a common tomb around this time in ancient Israel. I sent that picture across. Josh, you have that for me? There we go. All right. So this is what we're talking about here. This stone weighs somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. I don't know about you guys, like even world's strongest man status, that's pretty heavy. All right. So this angel casually creates an earthquake, comes down, and then just casually rolls this stone to the side. And then it says, as the women roll up to the tomb, he's just sitting on top of that thing, waiting there for him. Like, hey guys, what's going on? And so what's interesting, right? This is not a one person job. And yet you have one angel rolling this stone out of the way and he's standing there. And then what we see when we get to verse four is the first time that fear is mentioned in this narrative, right? Look at verse four with me. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like 
dead men. So the Roman guards, they see this angel, right? They see the stone moved. And in fear, it says they tremble and become like dead men. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you. So let me tell you a little bit about the Roman guards or soldiers who were likely guarding this tomb. Roman soldiers were the most well-trained soldiers in the world at this time. Rome didn't just rise to power because of some great ideal or because Caesar was like some brilliant guy. They, they had the most well-trained army and military in the world. And so um, they were incredibly well-trained. They were organized. Roman soldiers were drilled every day. Uh, they were physically fit. They were strong. They were well-known for taking instructions and directions and following them without question. And that, and that would have been important in battle. And it was, it's actually stated that if Roman soldiers were to disobey orders, they were killed on the spot for their, for their rebellion and their disobedience. Some historians report that, that Roman soldiers were so physically fit that they were expected to be able to march up to 24 miles in a day while wearing their full armor and weapons, which was about 90 pounds. And they would do that in five hours or less. I can barely make it three blocks with my kids running and throwing a football. And these guys would march five miles with 90 pounds of gear in under five hours. So, guys, we're not talking about mall security here. Okay? If you're a mall security guy this morning, I'm sorry. But th these guys weren't like the, the losers who just went to get the donut, and then when the kid shoplifts, they can't chase him down. These are well-trained, highly gifted men guarding the tomb. And these soldiers' job is to make sure nothing happens to that body because everyone knew the outrageous things Jesus had been saying up until his crucifixion, which is, I'm not going to be dead for very long. And so, right, this angel shows up, throws and rolls the stone out of the way, and is sitting there, and their response is, oh, crap. They're scared. They're fearful for two reasons. One, they know that if this guy's moving a 2,000-pound stone, they likely can't best him in combat. And two, they also know that the tomb is empty, and they are in big, big, big trouble because they had one job, to make sure that that tomb had a body in it. Now look at what happens in verses five through seven, right? These guards have fallen in fear and they basically pass out. I don't know if they're faking it or not, but they're passed out. Look at verse five. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee that you will see him. See, I have told you. All right, so the angel addresses the women after the manly guards pass out. Right, and he looks at them and he says, do not be afraid. Right? He's saying, hey, look, guys, I'm not going to hurt you. Relax. And if you have studied the Old Testament at all, you know that anytime an angel appears, a frequent response 
from those being engaged by an angel is fear. Right? There's something about God's presence and an angel being sent by the Lord that strikes fear into our hearts because we realize, oh, this is different than us. And so he responds, or they respond in fear, and the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. Right? Don't be worried about what happened to Jesus. He rose from the dead just like he said he was going to. Don't be shocked. Go in here, look at the tomb. It's empty. I know that that's kind of jarring. I know you're here to pro provide a proper burial for him. Don't worry. He's risen from the dead. And I want to stop and just pause for a moment because I think this moment in Scripture is one of the most important moments in human history. Because either Jesus rose from the dead and is who he says he is, or there are hundreds of us in here this morning and millions of people across the globe who have been hoodwinked by this man. Either the story that we are reading right now really happened, and then there are a ton of implications to it, or we've been lied to. Now, here's what I'm going to say. I think there's a ton of evidence for the resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you're a little skeptical, right, let me share some things that I think were helpful to me as I process through this. If you are a Roman leader or a Jewish leader in first century Israel and you have this guy claiming to be the Messiah and claiming to be the king of the Jews and you don't like that and so you kill him off but he's been saying that he's going to raise from the dead, right? What is an easy way that you can disprove him and stop the entire movement of Jesus followers? Produce the body. Some 2,000 years have gone by and the body still has not been produced. Could have easily been done. No body. Right? So then you say, well, you know, that doesn't mean for sure that he rose from the dead. Fair. I'll give that to you. But then we have to start thinking through, well, then what are the other possibilities other than this guy who claimed to be God actually being God? Well, one possibility, right, and this is one that is frequently thrown out, is that Jesus' disciples came and overthrew these Roman guards and stole the body. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you've read anything about these guys. They don't actually instill the type of confidence in you that would lead you to believe that these fishermen who lied to an eight-year-old girl outside of the court just two days prior about knowing who Jesus even was are all of a sudden going to just band together and overtake highly trained Roman guards and then move the stone so that they can steal a body and then lie about that guy rising from the dead. Right? These are all the things we have to believe if that actually happened. And just pause and think for a moment, what would the motivation even be for them in the first place to do that? What did the disciples gain from lying in that situation? Now, another theory that's commonly thrown out is this one, that they were confused. They only thought they had seen him raised from the dead. Come again? So you mean they're, they're going to be, because Scripture says that hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. We've got now at this point hundreds of people who are either hallucinating 
or on drugs. Okay? So those are two possibilities. The third one being is that they just straight up lied. Which we already said doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the body could have just been produced. Now, the last thing I just want to throw out by this, and this, is, this comes from a book that I read when I was in college, and it's a pretty common uh, thing to think through. When you think about the resurrection, right, what we're reading this morning is what's called an eyewitness account, right? This is Matthew's recollection of Jesus's life and ministry. And he is reporting these women saw Jesus, verse 9, raised from the dead. They saw him. Not only that, his disciples later saw him and a ton of other followers saw him. These men all reported this, okay? Now think about this. Uh, interact with me here for a second. How many of you in this room have ever told a lie? I see about 95% of the hands up. The 5% of you that don't have your hands up, go ahead and put them up because you're lying right now. All right, everyone has lied at some point in their life, Okay. At what point would you, think about the last time you lied to somebody, at what point would it take you to start telling the truth? Right? I think about when I was a kid, right? Because that, that was when I lied the most. My sister and I would get into a fight, right? And I remember one particular time, right? She kicked me in the shin and I just, pfft. come on guys, I was like five, And so my dad, you know, she cries and, you know, like all people who aren't guilty, I run to my room. <laughs> my dad comes in with my sister. She's crying. He's holding her hand. He's like, did you hit your sister? No, dad. Huge handprint on her cheek. Nah, dad. He's like, well, how did this get on her face? Phew. Dad, I have no idea. So he takes my hand. And he places it there. It's like, Kevin, that's a perfect match. And then he, then he gets down on eye level with me. He's like, son, you're in trouble either way right now. But it's going to be a lot worse for you if you lie to me. Did you hit your sister? Right now, I was faced with, at that moment, right, two options. Because I'm caught in my lie, right? And I know I'm lying. My dad's pretty sure I'm lying. The evidence would suggest it, but I know I'm lying, right? I'm faced with two options, tell the truth and hope for mercy or double down. At that point, I knew what was awaiting me. I did, I hit her, she kicked me and then I hit her, right? Because at some point, all of us, when we're lying, are faced with the reality of the consequences of our lie are going to stop. Now, let me tell you what happened to four, just four of Jesus' disciples, right? All of them claim to have seen Jesus alive after his death, all of them. And all of them at various times were arrested. And they were given the opportunity during that time to either recant and say that they were lying or to admit, and to admit that Jesus was still dead, or they could continue to tell the story that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Peter, 
was arrested by Romans and when faced with the opportunity to either say that he was lying or to continue telling the story of the resurrection, was ordered to be crucified. And his request was not that he be cru- not be crucified, but that they crucify him upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified the same way that Jesus was. This is the same guy who lied to an eight-year-old girl outside of the council days prior to Jesus's resurrection, saying that he didn't even know who Jesus was. That's the guy. Thomas, doubting Thomas, was killed by soldiers and pierced with with spears. Execution style. Andrew was crucified in Russia, and Philip was executed in Ethiopia. Every single one of them, given the opportunity to recant their story and their witness to the resurrection, and they chose not to. There's one disciple who was not martyred, and that was John. And that's because they tried to kill him, and they screwed it up. And so they exiled him instead. Friends, let me just say this to you. You have a historical account of 11 men who followed Jesus and these women and other followers whose names are not recorded in history claiming that they saw Jesus after he had been crucified. None of them recanted. These 11 were so convinced that they had seen Jesus rise from the dead, they were willing to die for it. Are any of you willing to die for a lie? The answer is no. People die for lies all the time. Don't, don't hear me wrong, because I, I know some of you guys are philosophy majors. Like People die for lies all the time. They, know for lies that they're not, they die for lies that they're not sure are lies or not. But if you know the truth, no one does that. And especially not in the numbers that we see here. Guys, the resurrection is a historical fact. And the reason it is a historical fact is because Jesus is not like everyone else. He's God's son in the flesh. And this was the father's perfect plan to rescue us. And so they get to this tomb and the angel says, look, he's, he's not here. He's left. He's risen just as he said he was. And then look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, right? There's that word fear again. And ran to tell his disciples. Right? I love the dichotomy there. It says they leave after talking to this angel and they leave with what? Fear and great joy. It's like, They are alarmed and frightened about what is going on, and yet they're so glad and happy. I think that, by the way, that's what being a Christian is like sometimes, guys. We live in that tension, right? And they're fearful because they haven't seen Jesus yet. They've just been told by this angel. They're fairly confident that what the angel has told them is true, and so they're super happy about it, but they're still worried about a few things. Imagine, Someone shows up to you and says, hey, that person you thought was dead is no longer dead. Go and tell everybody about it. You think you might be a little worried that the people you're going to tell might not believe you? So they have all sorts of things running through their mind at this point. But they walk off, and then verse 9, Jesus shows up. And it says, they took hold of his feet 
and worshiped him. I love Matthew's account, right? Jesus shows up and just says, greetings. And he's like, hi. And immediately the women fall down his feet and worship him. And here's what I want you to, that, that matters a lot, by the way, guys. Because for 2,000 years now, right, people have been telling us that Jesus is not who he really said he was and that Christians lied and that Paul tried to deify Jesus when, they weren't, when, they, when he wasn't supposed to. And Jesus didn't think that he was really God's son, that he was just a good teacher. Good teachers don't let people worship them. Does Jesus stop these women? No. Right? He accepts their worship, and then he tells them in verse 10, do not be afraid. Right there it is again. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Right? And that's where we see it, right? This invitation from Jesus to exchange our fear for faith. Look, don't be afraid. Trust me. Go get my followers and go to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. Follow me. Trust me. I'm better than all the fears you're facing. And you may be sitting there asking like, okay, Pastor Kevin, where are you going with this? Where, where are you going with this, right? Because you've told me about this exchange of fear and faith and, and, and what are the fears of these guards and women in, in 80-30 have to do with my fears? How does Jesus' invitation to these women on, on this road, right, speak to me and meet me in my fears? Let me explain, All right? The psychologist Carl Albrecht uh, released this theory on fears, uh, and it was published by Psychology Today in 2012. And I'll use the same joke that Derek did last week. I know Psychology Today is not a peer-reviewed journal, but he's got a PhD, and I would imagine he's smarter than I am, especially when it comes to matters of psychology. So I'm going to take his word for it. He says that there are only five basic fears that all human beings have. That's it. So like some of you guys, when I say the word fear, like my wife, spiders... Some of you guys are like snakes. Some of you guys are like the dark. Some of you guys are claustrophobic and you, you're scared of that, right? What, what, what Dr. Albrecht would say is that all fears, no matter what they are, can be summed up into five separate categories, right? And here they are. I'm gonna throw them up here for you guys, right? The first one is called extinction. And it's the fear of annihilation or of ceasing to exist. And this is more... Uh, this is a more fundamental way to express it than just the fear of death. It's the idea of no longer um, existing. It's an anxiety that all human beings feel, right? And, and his point would be, he says this, consider that panicky feeling you get when you look over the edge of a high building. You don't have a fear of heights. You have a fear of death or extinction, right? So you have, like for me, I'm scared of heights. Like Jackie and I, a couple years ago, we were in Paris and we were at the top of this building and I'm looking over and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to step away from the glass because I don't like this, right? My anxiety though and my fear is not over the height itself. It's what happens to me if I were to fall. I no longer exist. I don't like that, right? The next one is mutilation, it's the fear of losing any part of our bodily structure. This is 
the thought of having our body's boundaries invaded, of losing an organ or a body part or natural function. And this is where those of you that are afraid of spiders or snakes or whatever else, this is where you fall into that category. This is anxiety about those animals or those creepy things, right, doing something to you to harm your body, right? The third one is a loss of autonomy. This is a fear of being immobilized, paralyzed, restricted, enveloped, overwhelmed, entrapped, imprisoned, smothered, or otherwise uh, controlled by circumstances beyond our control. So this can be both physical, but it can also be like emotional or mental or relational, right? So like if you're claustrophobic, you would fall into this one. This can also be like a fear of rejection or losing a job when you're in a position of leadership. Or, or when you're a teenager, mom and dad saying no. Right? This, this is the fear that pe- people suffer for with the loss of autonomy. Number four, separation. This is a fear of abandonment, rejection, a loss of connectedness, being not wanted or not being respected or not being valued by someone else. His example is the silent treatment when imposed by a group, can have devastating effects on its target. And the last one is ego death. This is a fear of humiliation, shame, or any other mechanism of profound self-disapproval. Not disapproval of others, but self-disapproval that threatens the loss of integrity of self. This means that you feel that you're not lovable, that you're not capable, that you're not worthy. And here's how, here's how all of that right, connects to what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 28. The women who are going to the tomb that morning are experiencing all five of those fears, all five of them. Right? They, they fear death and mutilation. It's a possibility. They don't know what the guards are going to do to them when they get there. They fear the loss of autonomy. The guards might not allow them to even go into the tomb and do what they want to do. Then on the back end, right, when it says that they left with fear but great joy, They have this fear of abandonment or shame because they're unsure of whether the disciples will believe them, and if they don't believe them, they might reject them and not allow them to be around anymore. Guys, they're carrying all five of these fears based on one event. What is Jesus' words to these women? Do not be afraid. Go ahead to Galilee and I will be with you. Church, Jesus makes that same invitation to us. Do not be afraid because I am with you. Guys, here's why this is such good news. Not just beyond the fact even that Jesus says he's there, but he's the best person that could possibly meet us in that fear. And he's the best person to possibly put our faith and our trust in, because he can relate with every fear we can possibly experience. Right? Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who cannot relate with us, but who has been tried like us in every way. Let me, let me just say this. 
Every fear you and I could ever face, right, of those five fears that we shared earlier, Jesus experienced on the cross. And he knows exactly what you're experiencing and going through. He experienced the, the idea of shame when before he went to the cross and even as he was on the cross, he was spit on and mocked by his accusers. He experienced separation and that as he hung there, not only was he abandoned by his disciples, but he was abandoned also by the Father. Look at Matthew 27, verse 46 with me. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Guys, think about this. Jesus, who had eternally existed, who had always been in perfect union with the Father, during that time on the cross, had the Father's face turned away from him because the wrath of God was being poured out on him because of your sin and because of mine. That the separation we experienced from our Creator was being experienced in that moment by Jesus. He experienced shame. He experienced abandonment. He experienced the loss of autonomy because he was in prison and then nailed to a cross without any control. He experienced mutilation because he was scourged before his crucifixion. Ultimately, to the point of death. Extinction. Guys, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus is arrested, there's this beautiful moment of Jesus' humanity and divinity being put on display. As he's sitting there praying to the Father, he says, Father, if there's any other way, allow this cup to pass from me. If there's any other way that this can be done, please let me avoid this. But not my will, yours be done. He knows all five of these things are coming every one of them, and he walks straight into it because it was the Father's perfect will and because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he wants to rescue and redeem you. And in John chapter 19, this is what Jesus says as he's hanging from the cross, starting in verse 28. And after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said this, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's not saying it is finished because his life is over. He's saying it is finished because sin has been paid for finally. That the wrath of God is finally paid. That shame, loneliness, pain, death, they're all done away with. They're finished once and for all. And he proves it by rising again on the third day and is alive and well today, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he offers new life to us to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus by faith.
So if you're anything like me, like you're sitting there and you're hearing this and you're like, okay, I've got the fear thing. I understand what you're saying. I've got that Jesus is extending an invitation for me to exchange that fear for faith, but how do I know I can trust him? I'm glad you asked. And if you didn't have that question, I made it up for you. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 28 for me. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Let's just pause for a moment. Jesus has been alive for roughly 40 days. His disciples have seen him at various times. He's been teaching them. They go on top of this mountain, right? This is gonna be the last time they see Jesus. And I find great hope in these verses because it says some worship, but what? Some doubt. Some are like, I know you're back, but I just don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not quite there with you yet, Jesus. And look at Jesus' response to them, right? He's so patient, so loving. Right? He looks at them in verse 18 and says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's like, hey, look, all right, I see some of you are doubting. One, you're gonna see me ascend into heaven in just a second, so hold up. He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. What does that mean? Whatever is going wrong in life, whatever they're fearing, whatever doubts they have, whatever they're experiencing, whatever you sitting here this morning may be fearing or experiencing in your life, your struggles, your heartaches, Christ has authority over it. You don't, but Jesus does. All things have been given to him. This means your money problems, your school problems, your relationship problems, your health problems, all of it belongs to Jesus. And the only one that can truly do something about it is him. In Christ, there's the power to do something about it. Instead of living in fear, exchange that fear for faith in the one who can actually do something. And he says to them, hey, guys, look, all authority has been given to me. I'm behind you. I'm for you. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And I don't know about you guys, because this usually gets used as some great like evangelistic or missions week message in churches. But if you think about it in the context of what's going on here, this is so encouraging. These people are 40 days out of having denied knowing who this guy is. There are fishermen, most of them, and uneducated. And Jesus is standing there before them, right before his resurrection, and he's saying to them, hey, go start a worldwide movement that saves the world. I don't know about you guys, not exactly the, the, the band I'm gonna put together to go you know, share the most important message in the whole world. Uneducated fishermen from Galilee. And yet Jesus stands before them in the midst of their failure, some who are still doubting in that moment. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, go. You 
being here this morning is a fulfillment of what Jesus is doing here with his disciples 2,000 years later. The word of God will not fade away and the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Because all authority has been given to Jesus. And he says this, one last reminder to them. And behold, like look, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises right here at the end of Matthew 28 that if we exchange our fear for faith, God is with us. So here's how I want to end our time, and I'm going to invite the band to come up as we, as we close. I don't know where you're at this morning. I see a lot of faces I recognize, and I see a lot of faces I don't. Maybe you've been a believer and a follower of Jesus for going on 50 years. Some of you might be here this morning because someone dr drug you here. Begged you to come to church on Easter. Mom said you don't get fed if you don't come. Thanks for coming. I, I don't know where you're at this morning. But I would say this. If you, would, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and King, Lord of your life, the man who laid down his life in your place on the cross. Here's what I know. God is inviting you today to trade your fear for faith in Christ. Today. He's saying to you today, Jesus is the cure for all of our fears. There are people in this church that can testify to the truth and the reality of that. My own family has experienced this multiple times. Many of you guys have heard this story. Our youngest son, Josiah, has epilepsy. Right? We pray every day that God would fully heal him. But God has met us in every single one of our fears for that child. Is he going to live? Will he ever walk? Will he be able to talk? All the things that Jackie and I mourned and cried over for the first six months of his life, God has met us. And as we exchanged all of those fears for faith in Christ, he has been faithful. And my son still has epilepsy. Because God is better even than perfect health. <laughs>